I remember clearly that none of us saw it coming. I remember we were walking back from lunch to our fourth period French class, and uh, Mademoiselle McDaniel, our French teacher, was standing in the room waiting for us, and she had this look on her face when we got into the room uh, that just seemed troubled. And the first words out of her mouth were, well, folks, I don't think we're going to be seeing each other for a while. Well, coming from your French teacher right after lunch, this is kind of an odd statement, especially because it wasn't in French. And so we asked her, what do, what do you mean? What do you mean, uh, Mademoiselle McDaniel? And she walked over to the classroom TV, and she turned, turned on the TV, and uh, this picture waited for us. It was September 6, 1996. That lovely uh, picture is Hurricane Fran. And um, we were just learning that that night it was going to hit us. It had turned, it had wobbled, it had turned in, turned in towards the state, and we had just found out that this storm was about to pass over us. And <coughs> we had no idea that it was coming. None of us had time to mentally prepare for what that was. Hurricane Fran proceeded, actually I'm going to show you the, the radar image of it too. Hurricane Fran proceeded to slam the state of North Carolina. The eye wall passed 20 miles with, uh, within 20 miles of my house. Uh, we had sustained winds of 70 miles an hour. We had um, gusts up to 90, 100, somewhere around there. And we, I remember clearly that the bulk of the night, a lot of our night, we spent in the hallway, my mom and I spent in, my, in our hallway down on our knees like this, praying, praying for safety, praying uh, that, that I just messed myself up, Ugh. praying for safety, praying for help, praying for deliverance, and, and praying that God would uh, get us through this storm. And I remember the funny thing, my fondest memory of that night actually is uh, my dad is a huge weather nut. He is uh, just this huge weather fan, and he was at the front door, and he was, like, looking out the front door, and he'd be like, Ida, John, look at this. Look, the trees are halfway over. Look, the lightning is this bluish pink color. You have to come see this. And I remember from the hallway, my mom's over here, and she's like, Dennis, close the door. And it was like this moment of, like, okay, I can laugh at this moment because I'm terrified for my life type of thing. Um, but that was... <laughs> Part of the night. The bulk of the night was spent in the hallway, and you can hear the wind, and you can hear it hitting the trees, and you hear the house groaning under the pressure, and you can hear uh, the, uh, and some of you know this, it happens in ice storms too, when uh, trees start to bend, you start to hear that groan, and you know that it's right next, the next sound that you're going to hear is the crack, and that means the tree's falling. And that whole night we listened to that groan and we just waited for that crack. Um, actually, there's a picture of uh, what Hurricane Fran did to most of the state of North Carolina. Uh, that's one picture uh, from my hometown. And it, was the, it is recorded as the eighth most damaging storm of all time to hit uh, the United States uh, in terms of size and destruction. I can't remember the uh, numbers, you know. 
hundreds of billions of dollars in today's money of, of what damage it caused. But the thing is, is that as we are hunkering down in the hallway at night, listening to all of this like barrage our house, we, it struck me. Here we are, not knowing what's going to happen next, when merely hours before, we were living in this perfect, peaceful, I was perfect ninth grade life. I was just existing. And all of a sudden, we're in the middle of this storm. Perhaps you have been there. Today, we, in our scripture, we find that the disciples find themselves in a, in a similar boat, pun intended. And uh, first, but before we get to that, I want you to, to grab this out of your bulletin. There's a, there's a little yellow sheet, mustard, if you will. And it has three scriptures on it. First, on the front, you see that there's the scripture that Matthew read for us, which is our main text. But like so many stories in the gospel, it's recorded in more than one. It's record, actually recorded in three. This one's recorded in Matthew, Mark, and the book of John. And what I've found is that when you're reading scripture, when you're reading the Bible, particularly the gospels, and you, 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 you read a story, it's helpful to go and find the other accounts because Matthew, Mark, and John all wrote from a different perspective. They're, they're writing for different reasons to reach different people. And so sometimes when you look at all three, you can get a picture that you wouldn't get just by reading the first. And so uh, I'm going to refer to uh, Mark and John as well, as well as the Matthew passage. So keep this handy, and you can check it out, and you can underline or do whatever you need to do on it. But I just wanted to bring that to your attention uh, before I dive in here. In the passage in Matthew, we see that Jesus is making the disciples get in the boat and go ahead of him. He he is going back to dismiss the crowd. And so when I read this first sentence, this first verse of this passage, it causes me to have a couple of questions. And the first question is, okay, what's going on with the crowd? Why are there crowds? And if you heard me preach before, you know I do this. In order to go forward, you have to go backwards. And so I want to go back and say, okay, what, what's happening? What is happening right before Jesus makes them get in the boat? And if you, script, you flip back in your scripture, just one little section, you see that Jesus had, and the disciples had just fed the 5,000. And a lot of scholars, they talk about this, and that probably just counts the adult males. And there's probably children there. There's probably uh, wives there. We actually know there are children there, but um, there are wives, there are children, there are a lot of people. And so some people say that this really was about fifteen to 20,000 people. That is a huge number of people that Jesus and the disciples have just fed with almost nothing. They had five loaves and two fish. Now, why is this important to this story? Because this actually probably sets the mindset of the disciples going into this scripture. Can you imagine if you were there with uh, Jesus, you're maybe a disciple, and, and you're sitting there, and, and, and he's telling you, all right, go and get in the boat, head over to Capernaum, I'll meet you over there. What is your frame of mind like? when 
you'd get in that boat. I can just see them. I can imagine them now. It doesn't say this in Scripture, but this is just me imagining. Like, as they're jumping into the boat, they're like, oh, did you see that? We had just five loaves. We had two fish. And, you know, I, I was handing out bread, and that bread kept coming, and I kept handing it out, and it kept coming, and I kept, and it was unbelievable. And we even have enough for lunch tomorrow, which is awesome because I didn't pack a lunch before I came. This is amazing. This is awesome. I can't I can't even believe, and they're getting in the boat, and they're, and they're starting to, to row across the Sea of Galilee, and they're, they're really excited. And we don't have this recorded in Scripture, but this brings to mind the second question that I would be asking myself. What, what, is, what is Jesus doing? You know, in the, in the Gospels, in the Bible, wherever Jesus goes, that's where the disciples go. And wherever the disciples are, that's where Jesus are. They're kind of this this uh, group that rolls together everywhere that they go. So what is Jesus doing? If, if they're getting in a boat, which at that point in those days, that was the shortcut. Get in the boat, head across the water, that way you don't have to walk all the way around. If they're getting in the boat to take the shortcut, what is he doing? You know, this is, uh, in the literary world, this is a little bit of foreshadowing. We should see what's coming. And if that doesn't pique our interest, what happens next should what does scripture say that he does? He goes um, up onto the mountainside. Verse 23, uh, he dismissed them. He went up on the mountainside by himself to pray. Now, if that first part didn't say, okay, what is Jesus doing? Now we have to ask because in scriptures, anytime Jesus goes off by himself to pray, something's about to happen. Something big is going to happen. Uh, an example would be before he went into ministry, he went into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights. And what did he do? He prayed and he fasted alone. Or uh, if we think later in the story, we think of the Garden of Gethsemane and, and Jesus went and prayed alone. Anytime Jesus is about to do something big in God, with God's help, he goes before the Father and he prays. And so as we're reading this story, we have to think, what is God doing? I mean, what is Jesus doing? He's going alone to pray. That's a big deal. That is, that's big for us. He's preparing for something. And so here we have Jesus on top of this mountain. And we have the, uh, the disciples making their way across the Sea of Galilee. Now, uh, I'm going to give you a little uh, Middle Eastern geography lesson because I know when you woke up this morning, you thought, hey, I'd like a Middle Eastern geography lesson. So here you go. This is what we're going to do. And so Sea of Galilee is um, 750 feet, somewhere around there, below sea level. It is surrounded by mountains and cliffs. And a lot of those cliffs are about uh, 2,000, they can range up to 2,000 feet above sea level. In fact, on the eastern side, there, it's called the Golan Heights, uh, and it's really high up there. Now, the temperature on the Sea of Galilee, it's warm, it's arid, it's, it's just a nice place. It's what I wish we were doing right now. Um, I'm kind of tired of the cold weather, kind of tired of the snow. Um, I wish we had this warm, level, this warm uh, weather that we could uh, hang out in. So that's the, where the disciples are. Now, 2,000 feet up, almost 3,000 feet difference, is a lot of cold air. And as the cold air builds up on the backside of this mountain, and it peaks the top, and cold air goes uh, sinks, warm air comes up, and they meet. Now, if you're a budding meteorologist, when cold air and warm air meet, what happens? You get storms. That's when you uh, get really 
bad wind gusts. That's when you start seeing thunderstorms and, and, and lightning and all that good stuff. And so when we see this is what's happening with the disciples. They're in the middle of the sea. Some cold air pops the cliff, comes down. The storm is whipped up in no time flat. There's no way that they saw it coming. And so they're in this fisherman's boat. This is not a, a yacht. This is not anything fancy. It's a boat that can help, that holds 13 guys uh, at minimum, probably 15 or 18 is probably what it was. And it can hold them, and they're just using it to row across the sea. And so they're caught in this storm. They're in the middle of the sea. And uh, let's see, Matthew states that they're a considerable distance from land. Uh, the, the passage in John, if you look there, it says they had rowed three or four miles into the lake. We see that the, ro- the boat is being described as it's buffeted by the waves and that the disciples are straining at the oars. In other words, the disciples don't have control of the boat. The storm is in control of the boat. They're in the middle of the sea with the storm completely in control. Now, they have faced this before, but Jesus was in the boat the, the last time they were in a storm in the sea. And this time, Jesus isn't there. They are completely helpless. There's nothing that they can do to save themselves. And we, we read in the book of Mark that Jesus sees them struggling in the boat because, well, he's Jesus and he can see several miles in a storm from a cliff. And he decides to head out to them. And we get this picture, uh, this great picture that Amanda showed of Jesus walking on the water in the midst of the storm. Actually, my favorite part comes in the Mark uh, the Mark part of this, you can look at, at the scripture from Mark. It says that um, they cried out because, um, let's see, oh no, it's before that. He went out to them walking on the lake. And he says, he was about to pass them by. I love that because, I, can, you see, can you see the disciples in there, terrified out of their mind, they're straining at the oars, and Jesus just going, what's up guys? See you when you get there. You know, I, I love that part. Because I don't know what, you know, if that's what Jesus is thinking. That's just what comes to my mind when, when I read this. But he heads out to them. The disciples think that it's a ghost. And it says, um, uh, it says that he came to them. And that's an amazing picture. Uh, Amanda shared and talked about uh, the passage with Peter. I'm actually not going to talk a whole lot about that because I think Peter gets his own sermon because that was really cool. Two people in the history of the world have walked on water. One's Jesus and one is Peter. Um, maybe that's the next, my next sermon. We can talk about that. But when I read this story, I see this is a pretty entertaining story if I'm just reading it as a story. You know, guy, you know, guys get in the boat. Storm comes. They're about to die. Leader walks on water, saves them. You know, he gets in the boat. Storm stops. That's a cool story. That's a story that you could tell. And it, without it, you know, and that's just it. But this is the Bible, and so we have to ask, okay, what, what is Jesus trying to teach the disciples? And in the end, what is Jesus and God trying to teach me through this story? And so when I look at this story, there are a couple of things that I think that we can take away from it. Uh, the first thing is, number one, is storms happen. Truth is, storms happen in life. Like Hurricane Fran, it can be a literal storm. It can be a snowstorm. Um, it can also be figurative storms. 
It can be the unexpected death of a loved one. It can be a loss of a job, which leads to a, a financial, a tough financial situation. It could be a, a diagnosis of cancer or, or of anything else. There are a lot of times when I witness storms as a result of people being caught in sin that overwhelms them. All of a sudden, uh, they start with a, a sin, and all of a sudden that sin is now controlling them. There are a lust of money, things, other people. Storms don't always just happen to us. They do happen to us. Sometimes it's our actions that lead us into storms. And the thing about these storms in life is that they spring out of nowhere. They spring out of seemingly uh, nowhere. And it's, we go along, and like me in ninth grade, we're kind of just going on with our life, and we're going on with the things that we're doing, and we're going on with the things of uh, just the things that are important to us. And all of an, out of nowhere, this storm comes together. And we find ourselves helpless. We find ourselves straining at the oars of life. And we have no idea what to do. Storms happen to everyone. And that is a fact of life. It's unfortunate, but it's true. Number two that, that we can learn from this. God uses the storms to reveal himself to us. Now, I firmly believe that God reveals himself to us in the everyday life. God reveals himself to us in the snowfall. I love just sitting and watching snowfall and thinking about how God created that. He reveals himself in the mountains and in the ocean or uh, when you go outside at night and you look up and you see the stars and you just see, all right, God, you've got my attention. But a lot of times we are so kind of caught up in life and the busyness of everything that goes on that we're stuck and we don't see God in those moments. We don't see God uh, in the everyday. And it's not until we encounter a storm that we rapidly refocus our lives on what God is doing. And so when we, we're going through life and, and God is, is there, and it might even be through like a chocolate steak that God just says, here I am, it's just a me thing. But it, anything, food or whatever, and, and we're missing it because we're so, we've got our blinders on. And then a storm comes up, and then our attention, okay, God, I've got it, we're good, uh, where are you, where are you, I need, it. I need you now, I need you right now. And when you look at the, the gospel in Mark, you kind of get the idea that this is what Jesus is teaching to the disciples. Uh, if you look in uh, verse 51 of the Mark passage, it says, uh, Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. The disciples had completely missed the point of the feeding of the 5,000. They had seen the work of God. They saw that God was in control, and they completely missed the point. They were just excited by the cool thing that just happened. And so they're in the boat, and all of a sudden the storm comes up, and they, they realize we have to refocus on Christ. We have to refocus on what the point is. The disciples missed the point of Jesus and Jesus came and he walked on the water to say, I control everything, even the storms. And that's our third, the, the third thing I think we can take from this is that Jesus controls everything. I get a sense by reading the Mark passage that this is what Jesus is trying to, to get them to, to realize. So Jesus gets into the boat and it, uh, the storm dies down and simply by stepping in the boat, Jesus calms a storm. 
The Gospels say that the disciples were amazed. One says that they worshipped him, and they proclaimed that he is the Son of God. In that moment when Jesus came to them, they refocused and realized Jesus is in control. It's as if Jesus in this one story is saying, okay, we fed thousands of people with next to nothing, okay? I've healed the sick. I've made the blind see. I've done miracles, and you're still not getting it. How about this? In your hour of need, in your absolute desperation, when you aren't in control of anything anymore, if you look to me, I will take care of you in the storm. When you have no control, I'm in control. When you're helpless, I am your help. And when death seems to be the only option, I am your life. And you might be thinking, but John, I turned to God during the storm in my life. I called on him to calm the storm. I pleaded with him to save my loved one. I prayed that the diagnosis would be wrong. I prayed that God would take my sin away, and nothing happened. It's great that Jesus can calm the storm for the disciples. That's a great, great miracle, a great trick. I'd love to, 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 to believe that, but I don't see any calm in my life. And if you've lived long enough, You may have said that, you may have thought it, and it's understandable. I think we all, at at certain moments, feel that. But the, the good news is that the story of Jesus doesn't end when he gets into the boat. That's not the end of, of the Gospels. That's not the end of the story. The end of the story brings us to the Jesus' betrayal and his trial. And he'd be put up on false charges, and he'd be beaten and scarred, and in the meantime, his disciples would cower and hide. They would watch their fearless leader, that leader who healed the sick, that healer who helped the blind see, the leader who calmed the storm. They would watch as he would be reduced to nothing by the religious leaders. He'd be hung on a cross, and as death neared, he would utter the words that Amanda read a little bit earlier. When he received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Some of the college students uh, and and I went up to, uh, went to a conference down in Atlanta at the beginning of January. And one of the speakers there spoke about this verse and he said that our three words, it is finished. In Greek, it's captured by one word, tetelestai. Uh, Here's the Greek. Uh, that's the Greek. If you know Greek, you can read that. Uh, you can kind of make it out a little bit if you don't. But if you're like me and you don't know Greek, here's a good phonetic version for you. Tetelestai. Culturally, tetelestai was used in a number of different reasons. Uh, if you hired someone to do some work, maybe around your par- property or your yard or your land, um, when they finished, they would come to you and they would say, tetelestai. Or if you, you hired an art, uh, someone to, to do a commission, a piece of art, when they, they finished back and they looked at their, their piece of art, they would say, Tetelestai. Or if, uh, most notably and most interestingly, if you had a debt that needed to be paid, if you had a bill that needed to be paid, when it was paid in full, at the top, they would abbreviate Tetelestai. To us, these words, these three words, it is finished. This tetelestai is Jesus Christ saying he is in control of everything. Whether it's a storm, sickness, death, Christ has overcome it. It's what someone would say after they finished, uh, I jumped back in my notes. 
It doesn't always mean that the storm will disappear. It doesn't always mean that your struggle will go away. It doesn't always mean that you get the happy ending that you're hoping for and that you're praying for. That doesn't always mean that. But it means that God has conquered everything through Christ. Christ conquers all. He controls everything. But it's not on a mortal stage. It's not on a stage of our lifetime. Christ controls everything on an eternal stage. And we need to to change how we, we look at these things. A lot of us, we pray for these answers, and they just don't seem to come. Remember that Christ conquers for eternity. This is why Easter is a, such an important holiday. We're, we just had Ash Wednesday. We're now in the, in the season of Lent, and we're looking forward to Easter. When it seems that there's no one in control, Christ utters to Telestai. When it seems we're overwhelmed with life, we remember to Telestai. When it seems that, we are, that all is lost, we remember the cross. We remember that Jesus died. He went into the grave, and on the third day, he rose again. We remember we are dead to sin, but that Jesus hung on the cross and proclaimed to Telestai, it is finished. And when we see, when we, we understand this and we remember these things, we see what eternal victory looks like. We look at Revelation 21 when it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is among his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And this is what we remember when we're stuck in the storms of life right now. We remember this phrase, He will wipe every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne says, I am making everything new. And in that moment, uh, it doesn't actually end there. It actually goes to to chapter 22. He says, uh, starting in verse 3 of Revelation 22, no longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light. And they will reign forever and ever. Guys, when we're stuck in the storms of life right now, when we're stuck, when we we don't have control, when we don't see what's there, when we don't see the hope, we remember that Christ has overcome everything through his death and resurrection. That's the good news of the gospel. We know that It might not bit better immediately here. It might take a long time. But we know that one day coming in heaven, we have no more tears, no more crying, no more death. We we get to dwell with our God the way that he intended when he created the world. This is the reason why we worship. This is the reason why we come into these doors every week. We We worship God because he's conquered sin and death and hurt and pain and he will restore us to himself forever. This is why we leave this place and tell others. This is really, really good news. To tell us that it is finished. We are lost, but Christ has redeemed us with those three words.
if we can fully wrap our minds and our hearts around this and fully accept that this God will redeem us one day, we can leave here a changed people. And that's my prayer for you. Let's pray. God, we thank you.